me ask the question that you've answered in many ways already, but let's explicitly look at what is money? Oh, as you know, that's my favorite question. <laughs> money is a promise. Yes, right. So it's based on trust. Contract with the future. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah and with strangers, mm -hmm. right? With people you don't know, which is really quite remarkable. Right. China is the biggest producer of gold and the biggest buyer of gold. They're also printing money like crazy. So basically countries are just printing money, but they're also buying gold at the same time because they know they're making their money worthless. Yeah, so money is the most liquid good. It's a price signal that tells us what things are worth. We need a language of value, and, and that's effectively what money is. I think that strikes at the heart of why Bitcoin is so important, because this is the most beautiful technology I've ever seen. I can send this anywhere in the world with no intermediary, and I control my own monetary energy. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and Thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start uh, a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money Show is 100% sponsor-based, so all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Given your background and deep knowledge on the topic and the namesake of the show, why don't we just start with a big question? What is money? Yeah, so money is the most liquid good. It's what we all decide to, um, it's a price signal that tells us what things are worth, what things are relatively worth, um, labor, goods, commodities, et cetera. Um, it, it is the one good that is the most liquid by definition most people accept and, and understand its value. Uh, and it's, it's what's kind of agreed upon by the marketplace, um, although that hasn't always been the case. Uh, fiat money is the most liquid good that government by fiat decrees as mm -hmm. money. 
and of course pre-fiat money. The most liquid good was generally speaking gold, although there were times in pre, pre-gold era when, you know, seashells and cattle and wheat and mm-hmm. horses and other things were, were money because right? you, know, you could trade them. Um, but that was really a sophisticated form of barter. And the precious metals uh, really kind of emerged as money in the early days. And, you know, the Sumerians and the Egyptians, et cetera. And it, it kind of continued through the Renaissance and so forth. And so until Bitcoin was invented, uh, the soundest form of money in the world were the precious metals, gold and mm-hmm. silver. And I run a fund which focuses on those two um, forms of money mm-hmm. and the miners that produce those. But Bitcoin came along in 2008 and shook that all up, <laughs> created a better form of money and making me somewhat obsolete in my old so, business. But I'm morphing my old business into this new business. So That's a good answer to the question, what is money? Uh, how did we get to gold? There, there have to be certain properties or characteristics to this technology we call money that people are seeking, correct. that gold fulfilled, presumably. So like, what right. are those? Durable, fungible, yeah. divisible. Um, you know, it was scarce, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, gold is mined every year and the supply, the world supply is growing at 1.7% a year. It's about the same rate that Bitcoin's growing before the next half, half come, halfening occurs. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it had the properties that made it, was, made it money. It was small enough and scarce enough that one could carry a fair amount of value in a small unit. Um, you know, the Roman denarius, uh, Roman soldier was paid, you know, two denaria a year, which was a very small coin, about the size oh. of a quarter. Right. That was an annual year's wages, which is part why silver also became money because it's kind of hard to divide up half a year year's wages in one coin. Right, right, right. And so. You store value in your reputation, and that means you store value in the ethics of your behavior. The Bitcoin notion, I suppose, in some sense, is you have an unerring marker for that now. Right. So, well, I would, I would... hey. That'd be something. If I could add true. here, perhaps, too, that we would also seek to store our economic value and the money with the best reputation. Right? That's what the, right. the U.S. dollar is currently, what gold is historically. Yeah, and, th- and those are promises. Yes. Like, fundamentally, we, you know, you could ask, well, what is money? Money is a promise. Yes, right. So it's based on trust. Contract with the future. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and with strangers, mm-hmm. right? With people you don't know, which is really quite remarkable. Right. And so it's all dependent on interpersonal trust. And well, that's dependent on all sorts of fundamental things. Right. Um, but because it's dependent on trust, you would think the most trustworthy currency, well, hopefully that would be the yeah. one that rises to the top. Yeah, there's a work by a great thinker in the space named Nick Zabo, and he actually describes money as the trust-minimized asset. And what he means by that is that wherever you can store your economic value that's maximally insulated from the opinions and actions of others, you don't need to trust others, right? We don't need to trust... I don't right. need to trust right. that you trust gold. Gold just has a market cap by the free right. market. We can trust by we can trust by assumption. Yes, exactly. Yes, and that so that, that no actually inter- constitutes minimizing, wealth. Minimizing interpersonal trust to maximize. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I had this experience. Uh, I played a lot with eBay, and eBay was when it first made itself manifest. There, people were uh, trying to market. Um, what do you call that? Huh. I write you a check that bounces and auction. You send me junk, and that's <laughs> and eBay dies, and so you have a third party verify the transactions, right? right? Escrow, yeah, escrow. escrow. Okay. So people marketed their escrow um, services for eBay, and for a percentage of the transaction, they would verify the exchange. 
but it turned out that people were so honest it was unnecessary, like seriously unnecessary. And then if you played on eBay for any length of time, you soon came to realize they started eventually putting in reputational markers, right, which was percentage of satisfied customers. And if you fell below, like, if you were, if 98% of your customers were satisfied, you were doing a bad job. Like, if you were a good seller, it was 99 or 100. Some of them, some of them, many people with 10,000 transactions had 100% ratings. And so that was so cool to see because, and it shows you how civilized a society can be where the default exchange between geographically distant strangers who will never meet again is honesty. Yeah. And you think that's, that's the sign of wealth. That's the unerring sign of wealth. If you live in a culture where the default transaction between strangers is honest exchange, yeah. everyone's rich. <laughs> in any case, you know, the Marxist presupposition is that it's mutual exploitation that defines our economic relationship. But what if it's mutual trust? Mm -hmm. And I think eBay is a great example of that. It's like, no, wasn't exploitation because that was certainly possible. It was mutual trust. And, you know, eBay unfroze a lot of capital. Yes. Right? And the reason it wasn't even so much that it was a technological revolution, although it was in some sense, the reason it could do that is because the default transaction between Americans is trust. Let me ask the question that you've answered in many ways already, but let's explicitly look at what is money? Oh, as you know, that's my favorite question. <laughs> that uh, is the name of the show I just launched, the What Is Money show. Um, clearly, the we could say the, the Bitcoin rabbit hole is what's led me to explore a lot of these ideas in depth. Um, and I think as we've demonstrated today, it goes well beyond just the economic sphere when you start to think about things like exchange and morality and and time preference and civilization. So I love the question, what is money? I think it is the key to incepting a deeper understanding of the world into people, that if you actually just start to ask this seemingly simple question, it, un it surfaces more and more layers of truth. And I, <laughs> I recently, I just wrote a piece, I think I have 30 something answers to this question. So there's. <laughs> so in some sense, it's actually a more systematic way of asking the question of what is the meaning of life? You know, the, the, there's some questions that are almost unanswerable, mm. but in their asking, allow you to uh, deeply understand, get closer to truth, deeply understand the nature of our human existence. And the meaning of life is almost like this. Uh, initial philosophers uh, striving towards that. Mm -hmm. If if money is indeed as, as fundamental as, as, you, as you've described, especially in the context of value being fundamental, then that is a really, that's a more, let's say a 21st century way of asking the same question about what is the meaning of life. You mentioned that it's a meta property. Out of the list of many ways to answer that question, how would you help people to think about that? Yeah. the. First, most serious answer comes from the School of Austrian Economics, and it defines money as a universal medium of exchange. So this would be any good that is used 
held and used purely for purposes of facilitating exchange. So in the configuration of demand for any particular asset, it's bifurcated between its utility, which is something, a service that it can render to you in real time, whether it's, you know, um, if it's water, you're thirsty. That's the utility of water is that it can quench your thirst. Uh, Whereas the marketability would be the expectation of future exchange, that other people would want this asset in the future to trade it for whatever they may have. Money is just going to be the good in any trading economy that has the highest proportion of marketability relative to utility. So today, that would be gold. Gold has utility. It's used in electronics. It's used in dental dentistry and whatnot. Uh, but it's largely used as a store of value across time. And that's what it's been used for for 5,000 years. So if we say gold has a $10 trillion market cap, maybe $2 trillion of that is its utility value, or it's actually demand for use in computers and dentistry. And then $8 trillion of that is demand for its use as a store of value. Money, the marketability aspects of money boils down to five services that money can render. Money needs to be divisible, it needs to be durable, it needs to be recognizable, it needs to be portable, and it needs to be scarce. So I'll gloss over a lot of history with this and just say that historically, money's always been a technology, still is a a technology or a tool. I use these terms interchangeably, and if you think of a technology as just a more sophisticated tool, effectively. Mm -hmm. Of to best satisfy those properties, monetary metals were determined to be the most satisfactory tool, the most divisible, most durable, most recognizable, most portable tool in the marketplace. Of the monetary metals, gold was the most scarce as quantified by either its stock to flow ratio or its inflation resistance. So simple way to say this is that Mm. people always prefer the money most resistant to inflation. That's a nice definition of scarcity Mm -hmm. in the context of money is uh, if you were to measure it, the resistance to inflation. So how how hard is it to artificially increase the supply supply of the thing? That is the hardness of money. And that's why gold is hard money. Because alchemy is hard. That's right. Because no one cracked alchemy, so gold became money. So, I mean, that's such a nice, (laughs) clean explanation of what is money uh, with the five elements and, and gold ultimately won out because of the last piece of scarcity. That's right. And to get to maybe dig a little deeper there. So scarcity, we commonly think of scarcity as strictly a supply uh, property, where if there's not much of something, then it's scarce, but it's not actually true. Scarcity occurs when demand exceeds supply. So when there's more demand than the supply can justify, the thing becomes an economic good and it, it establishes itself a market price. So there's more demand for the thing than the supply can satisfy. The unique thing about money, as a concept at least, is that demand always exceeds supply. Mm -hmm. There's never enough money to satisfy everyone, right? Because another definition for money, it's the most marketable good. So it it can be traded for any other good service piece of knowledge in the marketplace mm-hmm. so be humans being what we are we're never satisfied right we always want more of something whatever it may be so money as the ultimate token of obtaining that something is always scarce as a concept but the problem with money is that if you can 
as you alluded to, easily increase its supply, mm -hmm. then all of a sudden you can compromise the scarcity of it over time. Uh, and you can rob people through inflation. Mm -hmm. So that's why the market settled on gold as money. And robbing is reallocating the value that I, so essentially the one property, like why scarcity is important is uh, it uh, adds a lot more friction to the reallocation uh, like through essentially violence or implied violence. Well, it prevents it through cost of extraction too. So if you want to go out and dilute gold holders today, you have to go out into the world and mine gold. It's a very expensive process. That process tends to find equilibrium where production cost equals the market value of gold. So if market value is $2,000 an ounce today of gold, its production cost is going to be around there. That's the natural market equilibrium. So that way, gold miners cannot just dilute people yeah. over time. Whereas if you look at something like fiat currency, which might, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but its production cost is zero. So there's a reason the market value of fiat currency historically has always converged to zero because its production cost is near zero. So the, net, the extension to that question might be, how did we get from gold to paper currency? And again, this is rooted in the properties of money. Uh, as good as monetary metals were and as good as gold is as money at holding value across time, it's rather limited in terms of portability. It is not as useful for moving value across space. This is another definition of money, by the way, a social device for moving value across space and time. Mm -hmm. So to rectify this technological shortcoming of gold, we introduced, first of all, the custody of gold was gradually centralized into more into fewer and fewer warehousing operations. This is because there are economies of scale associated with using um, gold as money. And that if you centralize the custody, the warehouse owner can then issue a paper receipt called a warehouse receipt for that gold. And then market participants can trade that paper as if it's good as gold. And everyone has an option at any time to go and redeem real gold from the warehouse. Mm -hmm. So that system works. Until the problem with it is that it introduces the need to trust the custodian. So it's introducing counterparty risk in the form of the custodian. Mm -hmm. And now should that warehouse choose to increase the supply of paper notes to gold beyond its supply. So if it's got a, three tons of gold and it issues six tons worth of paper receipts, all of a sudden it's participating in a fraud. It's basically lying. It's representing that it has more gold than it actually does. Um, and this is, that is the pathway that we got into banking and central banking, is we needed a convenience mechanism to rectify the portability shortcomings of gold. We needed to be able to move value across space, right? Gold was doing a great job at moving value over time, but not space. Mm -hmm. Paper currency gave us the ability to move value across space, but it introduced this attack vector for warehouse operators, which became banks, which became central banks, to modify the supply to suit their own political agendas. Added the snooze button. <laughs> allows you to do, just do a little fraud. To get something first. for nothing. Something, just a little bit at first. Yeah. Just just, to, just this one morning, just a little bit. Um, I mean, I don't know if you can speak to um, the birth of uh, fiat currency. Is there some interesting um, characteristics to that, those early steps that created it? Like, could it, have been averted or was this the natural 
progression of um, of governments. You know what's funny is that central banking was initially designed to be the custodian of gold, right? So they were going to custody the gold, issue paper on top of it, and then they would maintain, you could trust the public stamp effectively. You could trust that the central bank had as much gold on reserve as they said they had, and they were supposed to be the trustworthy institution. So we, pl- we went from placing our trust in a free market game theoretic process where we're trusting gold, and we began trusting this institution instead. This That institution would not have arisen if the portability of gold was really high. If we could have somehow sent gold across a telecommunications channel, there would have been no need for a central bank. Everyone could have custodied their gold in any, any information-bearing medium, frankly, and they could beam it around the world at any time. So this whole institution itself is rooted in a technological shortcoming of gold. So I think it's, another way to think about that is maybe had there been all the gold in the world today fills two Olympic-sized swimming pools, all the gold mined throughout all of human history. So there's not a lot, right? Mm -hmm. What if there had been just like way more, there's just been, I don't know, 20,000 Olympic swimming pools worth? Portability wouldn't have been as much of an issue, right? Mm -hmm. We could have, and this is to say, assuming gold was still the most scarce metal and all these things, um, portability would have been less of an issue. We We would have had less dependence or need for a central bank. So I think it's it's kind of idiosyncratic and that we just happened to end just, up here on this planet with a certain amount of gold. It best satisfied the properties of money. And a certain amount of humans uh, geographically yes. dispersed such that portability had certain properties that you want to achieve for humans in the geographical space to yes. be able to be a um, exchange value. It became so. more of an issue as we globalized, yeah. right? As we became more of a global society, we needed money that could move across space really fast, right? So we could trade in international capital markets. So that drove the central bank to become the dominant institution of the world. And if you follow the flows of gold throughout history, you know, I, I've been watching this uh, documentary on World War One and World War Two on Netflix. I think it's called World War Two in Color. Oh, yeah. This is really good. It's so good. <laughs> and, <laughs> When I say gold has been the governor of governments or gold is geopolitical money, like it is the base layer operating system, has been the base layer operating system for analog society. Mm-hmm. So it's always been about who controls the gold, is who makes the rules. And that's in that context, that's why Bitcoin is so interesting because it is the disruptor to this base level operating system that's functioned for all of human history. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, the Gold Investment Letter. The Gold Investment Letter helps sophisticated investors navigate capital markets and maximize their profits in trading gold, silver, and mining stocks. The Gold Investment Letter seeks out the most undervalued companies and identifies special situations in the mining sector, and then provides in-depth analysis on both their financial positions and future prospects. The Gold Investment Letter explores many complex domains, such as investor psychology, portfolio management, and macroeconomic trends, all with the goal of making you a better investor. The Gold Investment Letter offers a free version and a paid premium version, and I strongly recommend you at least sign up for the free version, because after having read a few of these issues, 
I can promise you it is a treasure trove of good information. You can sign up for the free newsletter today at goldinvestmentletter.com. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand-new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. And I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Money is something we're looking through. It is similarly a perceptual apparatus, right? We use price signals to coordinate market forces. Market forces dominate the world, really. But the idea of tainting that perceptual apparatus or distorting that lens through which we look through creates really uh, disastrous effects on the world. This is the corruption of money, which a, a lot of uh, my work goes into. It's sort of akin to attacking language itself, where if you just attack the word, right? If we're talking about the Christian sense, the logos, we attack the logos, mm -hmm. that it mm -hmm. inhibits our ability to adapt, I guess, right? We can't, the, the, the very tool we're using for adaptive action. Now we don't have consensus on the meaning of that word or, mm -hmm. or that price signal, whatever it may be. And so we're thrown into disarray. You know, it is slipping as, as government becomes, again, just engages in more and more overreach. And, you know, that the theft, the violation of private property, which are basically the same thing. That's what corroded Venezuela over the past several years well look what every country in the world is doing right now right it's rampant monetary inflation that's all a violation of private property this is a it's it's funny to me that people don't understand that more it's like printing money is stealing that's all it is so if you think that your country is not venezuela or it can't happen at home i almost guarantee you wherever you live Go look at what your central bank is doing right now. They're stealing from you by printing money. I virtually guarantee it. I don't think there's an exception to that claim. 
And I, you know, I, I'll give you, yeah, I'll give uh, you just one figure, Robert. Mm-hmm. Imagine in Venezuela what has happened to us in the last uh, nine years since since Maduro came to power. Remember, Chavez died and Maduro took over. Since he, since he arrived in 2013, nowadays inflation in Venezuela has been 174 million. They have taken away from our currency 14 zeros, what they call reconversions. It's exactly what you're saying. I mean, they're stealing people's hardworking, honest people's money. And as you say, people don't realize that this is even worse than when they take away, you know, your 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 company's expropriation procedure. I mean, because it's 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 subtle, but it hurts all society, and it's done on purpose. And that's what we have to understand. Yes, and it is subtle, but that that the fact that inflation is a less visible form of property violation exactly. is what allows exactly. it to be perpetrated at such a large scale. And so persistently, even today, I mean, I talk to people on wall street, they don't understand that printing money is theft. Like it's a real, we're, we're almost like caught up in a lie as a species. We think we can print money to solve problems and it just, it just doesn't work. And, you know, to your point to have that big individual in a small state, that's the path to prosperity. I want the value that I'm storing in money to be maximally resistant to other people. I don't, if I just used sand as a store of value, well, people could all run down to the beach, get a bunch of sand, produce a lot more of this sand money and dilute me, right? So they could basically steal whatever value I stored in sand money. So we start working our way down, like through voluntary action and people, coalesce on the thing that's hardest to produce the money the thing that best functions as money but is hardest to produce and that's gold gold is the most divisible durable recognizable portable asset in history that is the hardest to produce and now i'll try to answer silver too because it's like well we have gold and silver why silver yes silver functioned successfully alongside gold for thousands of years because we had not abstracted gold into a banknote yet we hadn't put we had we didn't have gold backed paper yet and so right, a silver certificate yeah so and the here's what happened is that gold was so scarce in fact that it was great for doing big transactions but day-to-day transactions, it was too much. It was like to buy a you know a cup of coffee, for instance, or whatever the equivalent was back in the day. You would it'd be like gold dust. You know, you could it was too valuable. So you could use a smaller something that had less economic density or value density, however you want to call it, like silver, was used more for like day-to-day transactions, and gold was reserved for large transactions. Now, so you can say, uh, what's the punchline there? Silver was more, silver was less scarce than gold. So therefore 
it functioned better as a day-to-day medium of exchange. Whereas gold was more scarce than silver. And so it was, it held a lot more value. So one gold brick could, you know, buy a house or something equivalent like that. Now this changed once we started going into paper currencies, because once I have a gold backed paper currency, I now have something that's very divisible, right? I can, I could have a dollar bill that represented, you know, just a little bit of gold dust and I could buy that coffee with gold now. So it made, it made gold much more transactable once I abstracted it into paper currency. So what this essentially did is there were, if you're looking at just physical gold, physical silver makes sense alongside it. So you can have, again, large transactions and small transactions. But once you abstract them into a paper currency, you've gathered all those properties of money under a gold standard effectively. Because now I have gold that's real portable, real divisible because it's just paper backed by gold. And so that essentially led to the demonetization of silver. And we've seen silver collapse in terms of gold uh, over the past several decades. I'm not sure exactly how long, but gold backed paper money. What backed gold? And again, I would zero in on that property of scarcity here that it was the hardest thing to produce. No matter how hard we tried, nobody could counterfeit gold. Nobody could make more than, you know, say 2% per year. Um, mm-hmm. and there's a couple of key points here. One, another feature of this is that because gold's indestructible, every ounce we mine every year is just added to the existing supply of gold in the world. So it's not like we're destroying gold every year. We're really just increasing the supply. But what's it, what this means right. is that we're increasing the supply by roughly the same or even a smaller percentage every year. So of the existing value stored in gold, it's only being diluted or inflated by around 2% per year, no matter what anyone does, right? No one knows how to counterfeit gold. Um, So it was just the ultimate store of value in that sense. So what was actually securing gold was the energy necessary to produce it, right? No one, if I could tap into a lot, if I could figure out nuclear energy back in whatever, the 1500s and go and mine gold with nuclear energy somehow, I could get a lot more gold a lot faster. So I could get rich, but no one could do that, right? So it was the supply of gold is actually secured by how much energy we can allocate towards its production. So this is, and this is critical to understanding Bitcoin, the value of gold was protected by proof of work, effectively. If I have gold, if I have physical gold, I've proven to you that I've done some work to get it. I've either mined it or I created something of value and traded it for gold. Or, and this is a kind of a twisted thing because gold's physical, maybe I looted it from somebody. Maybe I, maybe I robbed them. Or maybe I conquered their country and stole it. So I think that's a key point. Gold is backed by energy, proof of work. And this is something that Bitcoin has emulated. Satoshi, the creator of Bitcoin, effectively looked at the economic properties of gold 
And then he combined them with the economic efficiencies enabled by the internet. And that's Bitcoin, basically. It's a synthesis of the properties of gold with the properties of the internet. And in terms of Bitcoin as a money, again, if you just evaluate it through those five services, it's divisible, right? How divisible? Well, it's as divisible as information, effectively. It's just pure digital information. So it's infinitely divisible. Because Bitcoin is stored everywhere, every computer has a record of its history. It's durable. It, you can't, to destroy Bitcoin, you'd have to destroy everyone's record of Bitcoin everywhere and every computer on earth at the same time. So the analogy I like to use here is like, it's something like the Bible. You can destroy an individual Bible. You could just, you could burn a whole pile of Bibles. But how could you ever delete the Bible from human consciousness globally? Like, again, it's just, it's everywhere and nowhere. It's just an idea. It's just code, frankly. It's just information. So the idea of a Bible, the concept of the Bible, no matter how many Bibles you burn or destroy, is not going anywhere. Right? Another one. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's here, right? It's here for good, pretty much. Bitcoin's similar, just information stored everywhere. So to destroy it, you'd have to go and destroy an idea effectively, an idea that well, this is one of the things Bitcoin does, like it just copies itself everywhere. So it's like, even if you destroyed every version of Bitcoin on earth, but so long as one laptop with the full node survived, the whole thing would survive. So it's very durable, very hard to kill. Bitcoin's pure information, as we said earlier, so it's very portable. You can move it at the speed of light. Can't get much faster than that. Bitcoin is very recognizable in the sense that you can audit. If you send me Bitcoin, again, I just run the software, the open source software that checks the Bitcoin you sent me is authentic. And in it, the, another extension of that is you can also audit the supply of Bitcoin. So not only can I verify that the Bitcoin you've sent me is authentic or recognizable, but I can also audit the entire blockchain, the whole history of every transaction that's ever occurred. So it's very counterfeit resistant or recognizable. And then finally, this is something that's really unique. Bitcoin is infinitely scarce or perfectly scarce. It has a fixed supply of 21 million. And again, we've, that's never, that's not possible with a physical asset. You can't have a fixed supply of physical asset because you can't stop people from creating more of anything. But in digital space, by, by rooting the Bitcoin production process in energy, which is through the Bitcoin mining process, we can get into more later, it creates a proof of work necessary to create it. And it gives you a very high assurance that no more than 21 million can ever be created. So again, if I want a money that no one else, that's hard to create to store my value in, Bitcoin effectively perfects that because now I, there's a money that no one can create more of. Even if you go into mining, you can only create enough Bitcoin as the algorithm allows, which it, again, it caps out at 21 million. So it's like, I've argued in some of my writing, it's the, although Bitcoin is an invention, 
it represents the discovery of absolute scarcity. Everything before Bitcoin was relatively scarce. Gold was the most relatively scarce asset we ever had. That, in addition to the other properties it satisfied, is why it became money. But with Bitcoin, we have discovered absolute scarcity. And it's, it's, and it gets a little complex, but it's, I argue that it's a one-time event. You can't do it again. So I'll drop it there. That Bitcoin is essentially the most, the most advanced or perfect form of money we've ever created. And in that way, I view it as disruptive to gold. And gold is still the primary money in the world today. Even though you and I, citizens don't use it, countries fight over it. Countries mm -hmm. kill each other over it. Countries hoard it. Countries produce it. You know, It's still the most important asset in the world. And I, it's not my opinion. It's like, okay, China is the biggest producer of gold and the biggest buyer of gold. They're also printing money like crazy. So basically countries are just printing money but they're also buying gold at the same time because they know they're making their money worthless and then gold's the only thing that matters. So it's like, you don't need to look at what they say about gold, just look at what they do. They buy and hoard gold, they print and externalize paper money. In many ways, we're living through these second, third, fourth order consequences that originate with technological shortcomings of gold as money, right? It's like, yes, we couldn't send it over a telecommunication wire. And there were economies of scale that led to its centralization, right? It's much easier to put it all in one place and issue paper or electronic claims on top of it. Yes. And the philosophical questions well taken. And I think we, you know, technically, we couldn't have done it, but it is possible to do. The problem is once you introduce the claim, as you said, the temptation to arbitrage or the temptation to misrepresent, right? To create more claims than you have gold is not resistible by human beings. So we basically inserted the human element. And that's, I mean, when I talk, when I talk about the corruption of money, that's what I mean specifically. It's like, we put this technological overlay on gold and then we abuse that overlay into fiat currencies, ultimately. Do you think that the decentralization of Bitcoin custody, that's possible because now you can custody Bitcoin in any information bearing medium. There's no need to build a big Fort Knox or a central bank or a safe. Do you think that would lead to the decentralization of the power structures built on top of that over time as well? I think so. As Again, as long as that continues to be successful. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think people should be cautious about assuming that Bitcoin is inevitable. Right. right. I mean, we're, 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 we're 13 years into this. We're testing out all of its features and shortcomings. Yeah. Um, and we're seeing to what extent it, it enforces its will essentially mm -hmm. on the world. Right. So, yeah. is it hard enough that it's almost inevitable that it has to be used by more and more people, that more and more people encounter it? And then it keeps kind of eating other monies mm -hmm. over time. You know, as these altcoins come and go, as as you know, fiat currencies keep devaluing, um, is the is gold is Bitcoin easy enough to self custody, uh, and is it resistant enough to government restrictions on it? Mm -hmm. uh, is the game theory strong enough to make it so that Bitcoin can reach whatever critical mass it needs to resist, you know, executive orders that would kind of you know, mm -hmm. 
filter it out of, of most existence, can it get big enough and, and entrenched enough before those pushbacks occur? Because mm-hmm. um, you can imagine a future where Bitcoin stumbles in some way, maybe one of those early bugs was not fixed fast enough and it mm-hmm. damaged the reputation and, and, and or, you know, countries move faster on CBDCs and then, they, right. you know, they, 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 they have a way to keep up and, and mm-hmm. kind of, you know, keep it from hitting whatever critical mass it needs, which is hard to know in advance. Yeah. Um, and so again, so with the caveat that Bitcoin is able to get through those various frictions, yeah. uh, then yeah, I think that, that can, that, it can change the power structure. I think I would describe it as the best shot that we have right now, um, yeah. in order to have money move as fast, you know, bare asset money, not claims for money, but the actual money itself to move as fast as commerce. Yes. Um, and so it, it you know, you would think that given, you know, as, as, as long as there's not some sort of bug that's found in like most nodes right now, and then there's some sort of reputational damage or, you know, things like that, as long as tail risks don't hit it, it continues to be, you know, the most attractive way to, you know, the the most attractive money that we have. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we're teasing out a really interesting point here that the, one of the primary determinants in my view, I'd love to hear what you think, of the configuration of our geopolitical reality is really rooted in the nature of this technology called gold, right? The fact that we need to centralize it all in one place. Like we talked about earlier, it influenced the outcome of world war II, influenced the outcome of Bretton woods. You know, I think it influences where people live to some extent. It obviously influences the entire nature and structure of the financial system. The fact that we use all of this deferred settlement debt to accelerate our transactions because final settlement in gold is not, it's prohibitively expensive, basically, and you can't really do it um, for a globalizing economy, at least. It's interesting how much of all of this reality is just a reflection of this technology we built on top on, we built ourselves on top of. And so it's interesting to think that, well, if that, if gold then is now being potentially, Bitcoin's got a lot of things to prove. It's going to take a while, but if Bitcoin does, disrupt gold then the whole reality built on top of it it's probably going to look a lot different and that to me is a really interesting just point of philosophical consideration yeah and this you know to the extent that sound that sounds extreme to people i mean that's you know that's kind of the story of human history is that mm. physical realities dictate where we end up and what we do i mean so for example yeah. the are, it's not an accident that our major cities are mostly built on rivers and coasts, right? Um, because that was the dominant form of of large scale transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, when you have the invention of airplanes, you can somewhat bypass that problem. But of course, still for major shipments, you know, yeah. being situated near water is is very important. There's also a source of power. You can have various, you know, and, you know, ways to harness the power from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. The fact that gold could be so centralized is, is you know, it, that trickles into our how we structure society. That that you know for thousands of years, you know, basically power came from having gold, being able to be, that that lets you pay soldiers and that lets you mm-hmm. enforce your will. Um, and so, by certain accidents of history, as well as just the, the details of of what we have to work with, that's been how this works. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. 
Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. You know, the precious metal pegging a currency to the precious metal, the value in that is that you can't counterfeit the precious metal, whereas you can counterfeit the paper. So the, the, by pegging it to a precious metal or giving people the right to convert it into a precious metal, it keeps the bank honest, basically. They, have, they can't lie. They can't counterfeit currency because they can't counterfeit gold, for instance. So it's to the extent that precious metal requires energy to produce, like energy that you can't counterfeit effectively, that it provides this sort of restraining function. And I would, you know, that's where Bitcoin is so valuable is that it's just rooted directly in energy. It takes energy to produce it, just like it takes energy to produce gold, for instance. And it does it in a way that you don't need banking infrastructure, actually. It doesn't mean you can't have it. You can still have banks. You can still put your Bitcoin on deposit with banks. Uh, and issue currencies on top of them and whatnot, but it's not required. And I, you know, my big advice to you getting into the space, especially around crypto people that like to talk about decentralize this and decentralize that, <laughs> there's only one decentralized asset in the world and it's Bitcoin. Everything else is controlled. Everything else is controlled by at least a group, often an individual or often a trust. So we talk in Bitcoin a lot about this acronym DINO, D-I-N-O, decentralized in name only. <laughs> so a lot of these other communities and currencies and projects, I would say all of them would be my opinion. None of, none of them are decentralized, only Bitcoin is. So I think what you're describing, you know, Bitcoin can provide that value prop, that non-state digital monetary base. Here's, here's a, 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 a counterpoint to that a little bit. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a uh, alternative, um, but an observation. Uh, we we both are aligned that uh, a Bitcoin as a, a representation of a solution to a computational algorithm which requires energy to solve. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it has the benefit that it cannot just be produced willy-nilly whenever somebody wants to turn on the printing press. That's right. But ideally, in an ideal world, 
Bitcoin would represent, since it represents energy, it would be possible to reconvert it back to energy. That that energy was somehow intrinsically trapped in that in a way that it can be converted. So for instance, gold or silver or platinum or copper mm -hmm. um, has uh, intrinsic value as a, uh, a metal. Yeah. for a variety of different applications. Um, it doesn't lose that intrinsic property as a precious metal. It has it. It's, it's core to its characteristics. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's one thing that I've heard about uh, the Bitcoin world is it would be ideal. Now, here's another thing about Bitcoin that uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on. Uh, another thing that I encountered when I was at the Sovereign Man Conference uh, was a group that had built a uh, massively integrated chip. Mm. It, it had something like 2,400 processors on a single chip with very high-speed bus. Um, and they're now uh, almost completely through the prototype testing phase, and they're about to go to the forge to start building them. Uh, and it has some algorithms that are optimized for, for mining. Uh, and it turns out that it has a fraction of the power drain of the current uh, chipsets that are used for Bitcoin mining. So one of the things about that I'm pointing out is that the energy required that goes into that Bitcoin is subject to technologic improvements that might enable much more rapid solution of that computational algorithm. That's all. Yeah, um, definitely the chips get better and faster at solving the mining algorithm, but ultimately the new amount of competitors coming online to solve for that tends to adjust it upward. So you've got more and more people competing to mine Bitcoin and the algorithm itself, this is kind of the magic of the whole thing, it's actually calibrating itself to be as difficult as it needs to be so that there's new blocks every 10 minutes. So if it goes, if a lot less people start mining, it becomes easier to mine Bitcoin. If a lot more people start mining, it becomes harder. So it's like, it's a, it's an adaptive money, which is really interesting. Like it adapts to human action. Um, on the, the money energy topic, I agree to some extent, like it's ideal. Clearly you want your money you want to have an energy cost to money production so that no one becomes a currency counterfeiter like a central bank where there's no energy costs to produce dollars, for instance. Um, and I guess in an ideal world, you would also want that money exchangeable back into energy. So it's almost like a battery. But the problem is you're, we're talking about a socio, it's a socioeconomic phenomenon or a social technology. So, you know, you put, you expend energy to mine gold. You can't convert the gold back to the energy you use to mine it. Now, to your earlier point, gold has utility that's not money, right? It can go be used in computers and dentistry and all this other stuff, but it's not directly convertible back into energy other than in a market transaction, right? You could use the gold to buy energy from the grid or wherever. So I think that in that sense, Bitcoin is actually a better money because it's pure, it doesn't have a utility value. So for instance, if gold's market cap is $10 trillion, 1 trillion of that might be demand for computers and dentistry and whatnot. 
maybe nine trillion of that market cap is for demand of gold as money. Well, whatever Bitcoin's market cap is, it has no other utility value. So it's all monetary premium. It's like a pure monetary technology. It's something we've never had yeah. before. Uh, but then there's the, so the counterpoint that kind of touches on what we're talking about is peg currency, peg mm -hmm. cyber currency. Um, yeah. it, it, it would be uh, more compelling if, uh, and I think there's a lot of different commodities um, that one could uh, peg a uh, decentralized algorithm-based cyber currency to um, other than just precious metals or uh, fiat currency. Well, that's we why- the collapse fiat currency uh cyber currency just recently yeah sorry sorry to interject just wanted to say that um bitcoin being rooted directly into energy i think is the best choice because if you try to root it into or peg it to a precious metal you end up with an oracle problem that's what they call us in computer science like who do you trust to maintain the peg we just tried that with central banking right, right. it was the dollar was pegged to gold <laughs> yeah, we'll trust you guys to maintain the peg. And then what happens? It never, the peg is never maintained. Human yeah. nature and human corruption ruins the whole thing. Um, but, Bit, you know, Bitcoin's just this invention that sort of circumvents that to some extent. And, and look, I mean, admittedly, you're talking to a guy that holds only Bitcoin. I've, I've studied this whole space for years and years. I, you know, used to run a fund on the other stuff. Crypto can be very bright and shiny and exciting, but you know my current views on it are that it's mostly scams, scams at worst or innovation theater at best. I don't think there's a lot of real utility that's come out of that sector yet. I'm not, I'll reserve the humility to say that I don't know everything and maybe something does work out, but um, it does seem like Bitcoin is, is the success story in the sector to date. You write, value is the subjective preference assigned to an asset, good, or service by an individual. Because all individuals vary in their wants, needs, and desires, not only in relation or contrast to each other, but in relation and contrast to themselves at different times, in different contexts, all value is subjective. This brings with it the problem of intersubjective value, which can only be solved with a common medium of value or a language of value. We call this technology money. Um, just great job, like tying it back to money that, first of all, you said all value is subjective. So you destroyed this whole silly notion of intrinsic value that so many people like to wield, especially against Bitcoin. And then you said, but obviously there's an intersubjective problem of valuation. How do we solve that? Well, we solve it with money really good container for those concepts. Uh, is there anything you guys wanted to add on that? Well, once you sort of understand that human beings are always evaluating things, we're always orienting ourselves, we're always taking feedback in from, you know, the environment or the marketplace. And we're in this constant conscious and subconscious state of evaluation, like it's in, it's in the word. And as we are evaluating everything around us and the decisions we're making, um, we, we try and create uh, mechanisms to help that process. Now, that could be a non-monetary mechanism like writing a to-do list. 
and creating a priority and you know forming a you know a data hierarchy so that i know what to do first and um, or in the marketplace and in the realm of the intersubjective uh value problem that we have with other individuals who are all managing their own fucking hierarchies of value and everything themselves. You know, we, we need a, we need a language of value and, and that's effectively, you know, what money is. And, and this is, I think that strikes at the heart of why Bitcoin is so important because th there is no language that is more pervasive than the language of value. Like we're sitting here talking about ideas in the English language. Um, but a Chinese person, ain't going to understand shit. Um, neither is the Russian person. Um, you know, maybe a German person might understand a word here and there, but like fundamentally, like even human, uh, you know, languages don't compete with money because money is just a, it's a, it's, it's this language of the thing that we do as human beings all the time, which is we're always evaluating and valuing things. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a very tough, tough thing to define. And yeah, I hope, I hope we've done a good job here. I would just say there too that, yeah, money is the language of value. It's also the language that speaks the loudest, I think. Uh, we know this in a lot of our, you know, phrases like, you know, let your money talk for you or whatever. But this goes back to, well, money being this call option on capital. And we know actions speak louder than words. We know by that, reasoning then capital speaks even louder than actions because it takes a lot of actions to make a piece of capital and so if money's a call option on capital then well hell money speaks louder than actions speaks louder than words it's, it's just this language that speaks the loudest and um man if people looked at the looked at looked at it like that how much easier would the world be uh i don't think anyone would put up with a monopoly on money in that case. Like, what do you mean? This is our most important language. Get the fuck out. So I'm sitting at one of these pubs and a mutual friend from Montreal comes up and he introduces me to Bitcoin. And I'm like, come on, man. Look, I've spent 30 years. And this guy used to work at Fidelity, to be quite honest. And I'm like, yeah, you're smarter than this. Like Bitcoin is the Ponzi that we all read about. He said, no, no, come on, this and this. He explains the attributes and he says, let me show you the blockchain in action. And he took me to tradeblock.com mm -hmm. on his phone and showed me the blocks being built. Mm -hmm. And he showed me the mempool and global transactions taking place. And I was blown away. I'm like, wait a minute. There's only 21 million of these things. Nobody controls it. And I can watch this living, breathing thing right here in real time. Man, I was in love, okay? Yeah. I'm like, this is the most beautiful technology I've ever seen. I can send this anywhere in the world with no intermediary and I control my own monetary energy and I can watch it in real time and I can track it and, and I'm like, love. I was right. in love. Now I'm, look, I'm not particularly geeky. At the end of the day, there's way better engineers than I am. Uh, but I understand mathematics pretty well. I understand conservation of energy and monetary energy. I love what Michael Saylor, the way he paints the, he mm -hmm. does it way more eloquently than me. What I bring to the table is 30 years of mistakes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And none of them have killed me. Hmm. That's how you manage risk. All I bring to the table is 30 years of mistakes. Don't make the mistake of listening to Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger 
on Bitcoin. They are wrong. Mm. On a probability adjusted basis, they are wrong. 